This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 48. It can be found on page 810 in the Black Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, it's, it's an honor for me to be able to share with you during our Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, and, and if I can be honest with you, there have been sermons in this series that have been difficult for me, that have hit me hard. There's something about the Sermon on the Mount that points out all the unfinished stuff that, that goes on in our souls. Uh, and I think it's what it's designed to do, to kind of help, help guide us there. I was, I was uh, preparing for this. I'm at the copy machine uh, in the office, Xeroxing a commentary to kind of study and prepare and go, okay, Lord, like, what do you, uh, what do you mean in all of this? And so I'm, I'm just praying to the Lord. It's difficult for me to really figure out what does he mean in some of these places? And so as I'm praying and that, that, you know, white light is swiping back and forth in front of me, I go, Lord, like, why are these teachings so hard? Why are they so hard to understand? Why are they so hard to walk out? And I have this, this really loud thought in my head that I've come to recognize is, is the leading of the Lord. <laughs> it's as clear as a bell. It goes, because following me is hard in this really gentle way. And then my mind flashes to places where Jesus talks about, like, if you want to follow me, you got to pick up your cross. you got to save your life to lose it. The, the cost of discipleship. And so as, as I'm there with the, with the light kind of swiping, 
I, I go to this place of like trying to like justify or minimize it. Like, no, that, that, that can't be it. That can't be it. And I think, okay, no, that wasn't the Lord. That was probably just my own thought. And again, immediately, clearly, gently, no, it's me. <laughs> I'm standing here in front of the copy machine. Uh, so I respond like, yeah, Lord, but my life doesn't really look like this. But loving your enemies and not returning evil for evil. And again, gently, clearly, he goes, I know. You have some growing to do. So let me encourage you in the places where previously what we've talked about has like hit you in a difficult way or in this sermon today, if there's something that kind of hits you, kind of pricks you that seems difficult or scary or offensive, just let it land. Don't try to push it away or justify it. Uh, we have a king who has a real kingdom and real like standards or markers of that kingdom. And he is gracious. He paid his blood to welcome us in. He wants to make us like him if we'll let him. And we can always go to our king and admit all the ways that we have failed him or betrayed him and our allegiance or our love to him. And his response is always forgiveness and grace and welcoming back. So we can, we can stand, even in the middle of a difficult teaching, in the love of our Savior and not be freaked out and receive everything that he has for us. All right, let me pray for us. We'll get started. Hmm. Yeah, Lord, I'm thinking about how trustworthy you are, how trustworthy your love is, that you, like, you didn't spare your own son, but you gave him up for us. And so how much more would you, along with him, give us all things, give us everything that you know that we really need? And so I ask that you would meet us here today. I ask you'd help me talk. Uh, I ask that you would open all of our ears to hear not only what it is that I'm saying, but Lord, what do you have to say to every heart in this room today? Would you supernaturally open our ears and let that truth land and may it result in bearing fruit for your kingdom? We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So last couple months, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We started off with the Beatitudes where Jesus lays out his the values of his kingdom, of his kingly domain, where it is obtaining, what does it mean to really flourish there? What's the good life? And it turns out that it's poverty and grief and meekness and hunger and mercy and purity and reconciliation and enduring suffering for his sake. That's what it means to really flourish in his kingdom because his kingdom is not of this world. And in eternity, when we share in his kingdom, the hungry will be filled and the mourning will be comforted. There's an eternal perspective that he's bringing here. He then reminds us that the, his teachings are not meant to abolish and get rid of all the Old Testament teachings or laws. The goal here is actually to bring them into their fullness. And that unless actually 
the uh, righteousness of his followers exceeds that of the Pharisees, they, they can't have a part of the kingdom. And what he means by that is these Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, were stressing simply wooden outward obedience. And Jesus is going, yeah, but to be part of my kingdom, there's a wholehearted participation in my kingdom. It's not just what I do, it's what's happening inside my heart. And so Jesus gives these six examples or temptations. These are places where uh, it's difficult to like, how do I say it? They reveal the places within us where we're not lining up with his kingdom. And the six examples he gives are anger and lust and divorce. We've talked about those. And today we're going to talk about making oaths, not resisting an evil person, and in fact, loving your enemy. Embodying these values is essential to following him and to participating in his kingdom. So let's start um, actually at the end of our reading today. Let's start at verse 48. Would you go down there with me? Verse 48 is Jesus' summary and his conclusion to his teaching on all six of these temptations that we face. Uh, so let's look at them together. It's simply, it's one, one sentence. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that's a summary to, hey, in all these spaces uh, where what I'm asking is not just outward obedience, but actually a heartfelt participation, that heartfelt participation actually results in acting in the totally opposite spirit of the thing. What it means to be perfect here is to be complete. Your actions and your heart are aligned. So the word here uh, that's translated perfect, it's, it's hard to translate. And what it means is something like having all the right pieces in place and having them all organized together in the way that it was designed to be. That's what perfect in this instance means. It doesn't mean flawless. Jesus isn't saying that you have to be as holy as God to participate in his kingdom. He's saying just wholeness, all the completeness, all the pieces uh, together and organized how they're intended to be. So in this sense, an Ikea bunk bed, if it has all the pieces together and it's arranged in the right way, in this sense, it's perfect. It can be flawed, it can, it can be dirty. Um, I actually have been going through the trial of trying to reassemble a disassembled Ikea bunk bed. So it was perfect. All the pieces were together. It was all arranged according to the instructions. It was disassembled. Now I'm trying to put it back together again. And as it stands now, that bunk bed is not perfect. It does not have all the necessary pieces, and they are not organized how they are intended to be. But it, but it is possible for the bunk bed to be perfect in this sense, right? It's just difficult. It takes long suffering and patience to get there. So Jesus isn't asking us to do something that is impossible. He's asking us to do something that takes some work, some discipleship, some patience, and tons and tons of his grace and leading. So there's these three overlapping concepts now. There's this idea of being complete. There's the idea of a righteousness that surpasses, and there's an idea of a righteousness that fulfills the law. And all three of those are kind of synonymous. They're overlapping uh, concepts. 
And so these concepts, um, they're all somewhat synonymous of this righteousness that is seized out of the Pharisees, that fulfills the law, that's perfect and complete. And they're all about this embodied relationship with God that results in our actions and our hearts being in line with his character and values. That's when we're in his kingdom, in his kingly domain. Okay, so now we're ready to talk about oaths, the first one of our temptations today. Jesus says, again, you've heard it said that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It can be tough for us to really kind of grasp this idea of oath. We don't do it too much in our modern kind of materialistic society. Um, but the idea is, is someone is making a promise and then they will invoke something like a curse or a god or a sacred object to act as a guarantee that one would actually fulfill that promise. And the idea is if they don't keep their word and don't fulfill the promise, then they would receive this curse or offend or dishonor uh, the God or the sacred object that they swore by. Uh, The idea is kind of like that children's rhyme, you know, do you promise? I promise, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. The idea is uh, that you're saying that you would rather have those things happen to you than break the promise. So there it is in kind, of a, in kind of a childish way. But this was all supposed to make it more likely or seem like it was more likely that you would fulfill the promise that you were making. And the Pharisees were uncomfortable with the idea of swearing an oath in God's name in particular. And so people were swearing by other things. They were swearing by heaven or the earth or the temple or Jerusalem or the altar, all, all, all kinds of stuff. And so uh, this created a few problems. Well, first, with people swearing an oath by all kinds of different stuff besides God, they thought it became necessary to distinguish between a legit thing that you could swear by and an illegitimate thing that you could swear by, which meant that there were some oaths that were uh, legitimate and actually had to be kept And there were some that were immediately invalidated by what you swore by, and you didn't have to keep it. This would be, in our day, kind of like signing a contract that you know is not enforceable. And so rather than it being uh, a bolster to your honesty, uh, it became a way to actually practice dishonesty, because it wasn't a real oath, and I didn't really break it. So it actually fed dishonesty rather than feeding honesty. And the second problem was that even though people tried to create distance between their oath and their God by naming this other stuff, everything actually belongs to God anyway. It was all created by him and for him and everything uh, in him, everything holds together. And so people end up leveraging God and his creation in an attempt to borrow credibility from him and apply it to themselves. And they have no right to do this 
because heaven is God's throne. The earth is his footstool. It's not theirs. And Jerusalem is his city, and it's not something to exploit for the sake of their own image management or to look more trustworthy than they actually were. No, Jesus said, it is not his way to dishonor his creation or, or deceive other people by posturing or leveraging with your words. He says, simply and meekly be the kind of person who does what they say that they will do. And adding anything to this kind of simple and wholehearted way of making commitments tarnishes it. Okay, so what does that mean for us today? Well, first of all, actually avoid taking some oaths. Like if you're looking at joining some organization or club or society and they want you to swear on some oath or something that you won't, whatever, divulge the club, like just don't join that club maybe. So we can actually obey the commandment by not taking these kinds of oaths. Now, I'm not saying none at all, because there are some necessary oaths in our society, right? Like an oath of office or an oath of service, or you got to go to court and they swear you in. Um, there, are, there are like some exceptions, and there's a way that we can know this for sure, that we can demonstrate it. Uh, and that is that Jesus himself was placed under an oath during his trial by the high priest. Jesus was silent when merely asked a question. But when Caiaphas proclaimed, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ. To adjure someone by the living God is a formal way to place someone under an oath. And it was then that Jesus responded. Um, Okay, so the point here is not to take the do not take an oath at all in some exact wooden way that ignores other scriptural teachings. That would miss the point. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The point is to be the kind of person who doesn't need to hide behind stuff and simply keeps their commitments. Like, maybe you don't need a Jesus fish or a cross on display to bolster your credibility before people. All right, Jesus continues with retaliation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I think this is actually, for me, anyway, the hardest of Jesus' teachings on these temptations. This is the toughest one for me. There's something about not resisting an evil person that seems offensive or scary or foolish. Like, it, it seems unlivable. So it begs the question, what, what is Jesus actually teaching here? Well, First, the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth language is in the scriptures. Uh, and the idea there is to create a restraint against people getting uh, retribution, people getting, uh, taking justice into their own hands. It's to limit an overpunishment or overreaction. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, not... I lose my eye in a fight and murder you in revenge, or get friends together and wipe out your whole village. 
So the idea was to formalize justice uh, and place it like within the, within the state, within the government to, to formalize it and to take it out of people's hands so they're not taking revenge or practicing vigilantism. So it's not so much to mandate retaliation as it is to restrain uh, sort of like overly getting even or, or getting back. All right, so how do we make sense of Jesus' instructions not to resist someone who, who is evil? Okay, well, someone who is evil here is simply someone who is trying to take something from you. And this person could be trying to take your dignity from you by backhanding you with an insulting slap, could be trying to take your property from you through a lawsuit, could be trying to take your time and energy from you by requiring you to do something that isn't fair, or trying to take money by begging or borrowing. So notice here in Jesus' teaching, this evil person, it could be anyone, someone who despises you, could be a business partner, it could be a oppressive government, or it could be a friend or a family member trying to borrow or, or beg from you and get a loan. Jesus says that the way to exceeding righteousness in your heart is to respond to that someone trying to take from you with an opposite spirit of compassion and generosity. A heart that wants to fight back and take something from them instead is not Christ's kingdom. A heart that wants to cut them off and avoid them is not Christ's kingdom. A heart that wants to generously give away what is rightfully yours is Christ's kingdom. And and as I hear Jesus' instructions here, my soul kind of cries out. Like, does he really mean that I am to respond in generosity if somebody is trying to steal from me? Well, the answer to that question is yes. And that part of you just now that kind of rose up in fear or in offense, let me posit to you that that is the part of you that Jesus is inviting to participate into his kingdom. Let that, let that little sting or that surprise or that fear guide you. Because I, I believe that's actually what Jesus is trying to do here, to evoke these things in us and to point out places where we can align with his kingdom more clearly. So I don't want to soften it or round it off for you. But uh, Jesus is using some hyperbole here. Uh, And here's how we can tell. All right, so Romans 13 talks about how the government bears the sword and is, quote, God's servant who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So Jesus is not commanding blanket pacifism, and he isn't anti-police. Risking your life and using force to protect others is different from fighting back to protect your own reputation and comfort. Second, listen to Paul accuse the Corinthians in a sarcastic tone for putting up with these false apostles. Second Corinthians eleven seventeen, <laughs> he gets saucy. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you 
or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. So what Paul is sarcastically saying here is that he was too weak to put up with that kind of treatment. And he's saying that they ought to not put up with it either. So the point is not to resist an evil, or not resist an evil person in some exact wooden way that ignores other scriptural teachings. Again, this would miss the point. This is what the Pharisees were doing. The point is to focus on your heart so that you become the kind of person who responds with compassion and generosity toward everyone, even the one who is trying to take from you. Just because Jesus is using some hyperbole here, though, does not mean that you are off the hook for feeling reactively closed-fisted when somebody wants to take from you. All right, so what might that look like today? Well, what if someone offends your dignity and says something demeaning about you or people you love or something you care about on social media? Okay, so first of all, let me personally encourage you to get off social media. (laughs) Get out of there. Okay, back to the sermon. That was just for free. Uh, Okay, but let's say that does happen. Let's say you are on social media, something demeaning. So how might you respond? with compassion and with generosity. Well, it's not firing back a counterattack. It's not even trying to save face by presenting an orderly defense. It's not even blocking the account and cutting them off. Maybe turning the other cheek is offering an olive branch or a cup of coffee. Maybe turning, on, uh, turning the other cheek is stopping right there and praying for that person while you're seeing their comment. Not praying that they're that their opinion would change, but praying for their good, that there'd be more love in their marriage, that they would prosper financially. That would be a heart that responds in generosity and compassion. What if somebody selfishly demands your time and energy when it feels like you're on empty? Well, maybe it's not taking that work project that landed in your lap and pushing it off to someone else. Maybe it's you accepting it, even though it's not really in your job description and asking, hey, are there anything else that I can do to help? Maybe it's that. Uh, Last night, I was asking Emily uh, for examples of how that might play out in the home. Like, what are are the ways that we might go the extra mile with our kids or with our spouses? Well, this is actually after we went to bed. We had already said goodnight. I'm laying there looking at the ceiling in the darkness going, I don't have an example for that yet. And so I asked her, Hey, Em, what do you think? What would some examples be? And so we start kind of brainstorming together. Maybe it's like with your kids, you help them with their school project more than you have to, or like you're tired and your kid asks to play with you, and so you play with them, but then like actually like do more than what they're asking. Maybe it's something like that. The spouse thing is really hard. Emily kept coming up with ways that she really faithfully serves our family by doing things for us even when we don't ask. Little, little secret, quiet ways of shopping for the things that she knows that we like, even though she might not like them or kind of picking up after us. And with each of these, I, I kept interrupting. I go, no, well, like, okay, for it to meet the pattern, it has to start with a request that's not fair, and then you fulfill the request and then go the extra mile, right? So she's like, well, what about when I pick up? I was like, all right, quietly. No, it has to start with a request. Okay, well, you know, what about shopping? No, no, it has to start with a request and then you have to exceed the request. <laughs> so eventually she goes, uh, right now. <laughs> this 
conversation right here is me going beyond what I have to do and walking the extra mile with you. So there you go. I submit to you the, uh, the example of my wife and how to go the extra mile and coming up with an examples for a sermon that is not her responsibility to write. Uh, so the concept of being generous from those who want to take from you, at least this next topic of loving your enemy, uh, which is another difficult one. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus ends this section of six temptations with the highest peak, the Mount Everest of virtue in his kingdom. Not just loving your neighbors, but loving your neighbor when they are also your enemy. I think it's important to start off by saying with this one in particular, that a command to hate your enemy is actually not in the Bible anywhere. But the Pharisees were teaching that that was part of what God wanted. And so again, Jesus' instruction is to act in the opposite spirit. Don't hate, help. Jesus' instruction is to bless, to pray for, and to do good to those that hate and hurt us. Throughout the Gospels, this concept of to be a son of is to prove whose family you belong to by acting like you are part of that family. And part of what it means to function as part of God's kingdom family is to be patient with evil and unjust people and give them good gifts, just like our Heavenly Father does. But loving our enemies does not mean that we forfeit our mission by making ourselves an easy target or always responding to them how they want. So listen to these examples. Jesus taught in Matthew 10, when you are persecuted in one town, flee to another. So we don't have to wait around and bake them cookies, making ourselves a, an easy target. In Acts 5, when the apostles were detained for the second time by the chief priests for breaking their order not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus, quote, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And this enraged the council. He was not loving them how they wanted to be loved. And the result is they beat the apostles and they charged them again not to speak in the name of Jesus. So the point is not to love your enemies according to your enemy's standard of love or in some exact wooden way that ignores other scriptural teachings and our great commission. The point is to cultivate a heart that's willing to put ourselves at risk for the good of those who hate us. And the greatest good that we can offer anyone is the gospel. All right, so what does that look like for us today? Well, maybe you don't know someone yet who has been persecuted for faithfully following Jesus. So I think it might be helpful to give you a picture or a portrait or an example, a model of what that might look like here in our time. 
Um, in case you don't know, today in China and in lots of other places of the world, Christians are arrested and tortured and killed. <laughs> Happy Family Worship Day. And so I, what I want to read from you is a letter from an underground church pastor. He wrote the letter just before he was imprisoned, and he has still not been released. Uh, he, was, he was arrested for sharing the gospel with unbelievers and continuing to meet in an unsanctioned church, which is illegal. And this is their kind of spiritual disobedience. All right, so let me, let me read you some excerpts from this letter. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. But this does not mean that my personal disobedience and the disobedience of the church is in any sense fighting for rights or political activism in the form of uh, civil disobedience because I do not have an intention of changing the institutions or the laws of China. As a pastor, the only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sinful nature by this faithful disobedience and the testimony that it bears for the cross of Christ. He continues, at any time, if external oppression and violence rob me of inner peace and endurance so that my heart begins to breed hatred and bitterness toward those who persecute the church and abuse Christians, then spiritual disobedience fails at that point. The mystery of the gospel lies in actively suffering, even being willing to endure unrighteous punishment as a substitute for physical resistance. Peaceful disobedience is the result of love and forgiveness. The cross means being willing to suffer when one does not have to suffer. For Christ had limitless ability to fight back, and yet he endured all of the humility and hurt. The way that Christ resisted the world that resisted him was by extending an olive branch of peace on the cross to the world that crucified him. It's pretty powerful stuff, yeah? All right, so righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, fulfills the law, and is perfect or complete is all about an embodied relationship with God that results in our actions and our hearts being in line with his character and values. That's when we're in his kingdom, his kingly domain. And Jesus isn't saying that you must be as holy as God in order to participate in his kingdom. In fact, the opposite is true. Our heavenly father is patient with evil and unjust people, and he loves to give them good gifts. And Christians, that's us too. For while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so in all the places where we are 
incomplete and have growth to do and don't act according to our king's domain. Simply have to come to him. Confess the ways that we have not been acting in allegiance to him and we receive his pardon and are welcomed into his kingdom and into his family. And that is what we celebrate together each week at communion. The way that we do communion here uh, at Redeemer is that you come whenever you're ready, you tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. The stoneware cup is wine and the glassware cup is juice. We'll have a gluten-free station over here on the side. If you're not a Christian, someone whose loving allegiance is placed in Jesus, then, then don't have this meal with us. I'd rather you talk with him. Uh, for all of us, there are prayer ministers over here on the side that would love to pray with you about anything. And so I'm gonna pray for us here, and you can come forward when you're ready, but I urge you to not be too quick to hop up. Maybe use this time to do some business with the Lord and go, Lord, in, in those places where this is difficult for me, what do I need from you? All right, let us pray. Yeah, so Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can trust your love for us. That your kingdom really is flourishing. And that you who didn't spare your own son, but gave him up for us. Like, of course, you along with him will give us all things. The things that you know are really good, things you know we really need, flourishing in his kingdom. And so we ask you to meet each of us here today and in our celebration of your broken body and spilled blood. In the name of Jesus, amen.